I'd like for you to turn back to that passage that we read this morning, Isaiah chapter 6. I want to read again verses 1 through 8. And this is part two of the mini series. What happened at church? Wouldn't it be great if this happened to us? Mm. In the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah 6 1, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which had been taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. I need to just kind of um, review just a second. To say that this great passage is divided into two natural divisions that repeat. There is the vision and the voice. And then for emphasis, there is the vision and the voice. The vision is that he saw the Lord in the year of King Uzziah's death. He saw the throne that is above thrones that is never empty. And he saw the Lord there. And there's two words for Lord here. One is Adonai, the other is Yahweh. I saw God, our sovereign. I saw God who is the supreme sovereign over everything. He saw not only the sovereign God, he saw the royal and regal God whose royalty dwarfs every earthly monarch, his train, the train of his robe, the symbol of his, his rank filled the temple. I mean, it was, the word is that it was pressing out the cracks. It just filled every inch of it symbolically. He saw the seraphim marvelous vision of these angelic beings whose only duty is to live in the court and serve the Lord. And six wings they possessed, two to cover their faces they didn't want to see, two they covered their feet they didn't want to be seen. 
and with two they flew. That is, they responded immediately to the command of the sovereign Jehovah Yahweh God, the supreme commander. And he heard sounds. He heard the angelic song antiphonally sung. Back and forth they sang to each other that one word, holy, holy, holy. And when it was repeated to the third degree, it was of absolute superlative importance. This attribute of God cannot be overlooked, cannot be cast aside. He is transcendently separate. And of all the things we know about God, there is nothing any more profound and awesome than that, that this royal sovereign God is transcendently separate. And then he saw himself, and the, and the text picks up tonight with this, woe is me. Now to understand this exclamation of the prophet, you have to see it against the background of a special form of speech in the Bible. You remember, of course, that the prophets were spokesmen or messengers of God. They were not scholars leaving their writings for the, for the uh, philosophers leaving their writings for the scholars to debate, nor were they playwrights leaving novels for public entertainment. They were mouthpieces of the cosmic king. And, and a part of their announcement, uh, one of the common forms of their announcements, their messages from God were called oracles. An oracle was an, was an announcement from God. It could be announcement of good news or it could be announcement of bad news. If it was an announcement of divine blessing, it was a positive oracle. There are illustrations of it in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the most graphic illustration of a positive oracle is in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He wasn't saying that your blessedness is conditioned upon being poor in spirit. He is saying blessed is the man because he's poor in spirit and that announcement of blessing from God was announced upon him. Blessed are the pure in heart. He was announcing God's blessing upon the pure in heart. It was an announcement of divine blessing. But the flip side is the announcement of divine judgment or doom. And the formula for divine, the divine announcement of judgment or doom is in the word woe. So that on the lips of the Old Testament prophet, there is doom announced simply in the uttering of the word woe so that nations and cities and people, individuals, were pronounced under the doom and the judgment of God simply when the prophet uttered the word, woe. Jesus did that. He talked about the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, and he said, woe unto you. And he said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And in the statement of that oracle, this great prophet of God, yea, Jesus, was announcing God's judgment upon them. Someone said, 
They didn't kill him because he said, consider the lilies how they spin. He, they killed him because he said, consider the thieves how they steal. Now he didn't just say, you bad boys, naughty, naughty, you shouldn't do this. He looked at the Pharisees and the scribes and he pronounced woe upon them, that is the judgment of God upon them. Now the unique thing about this exclamation, this announcement was that the prophet proclaimed it upon himself. He didn't announce the judgment or the doom of God upon the nation or the individuals of the nation. He pronounced that woe of judgment upon himself. Woe is me, doomed am I, for I am ruined, he said. I am disintegrated. It's, it's a word that means disintegration. Um, I am shattered. I am broken. Integration is the bringing of things together in harmony. Disintegration is the shattering of things. It's what the psychologists call personal disintegration. I am shattered. I'm coming apart. I thought I had it all together, but I am coming apart. And from that word integration comes our word integrity. This man was a man of personal integrity. He was a paragon of virtue. He was a man of impeccable character. But in the gaze of this absolute holiness, he crumbles, he disintegrates. Now as long as he can compare himself with mere mortals, he is able to sustain this high opinion of himself. But, in the, but as he gauged himself or judged himself, under the absolute standard of the holiness of God, he was destroyed morally and spiritually. He was ruined. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. Now, we're fortunate, I suppose, that God to us reveals our sinfulness a bit at a time, bit by bit. I mean, we experience a gradual recognition of our sins so that God sometimes, you know, when I really get serious about my life, he, he, he begins to reveal my sin to me and just kind of bit by bit, he kind of takes it easy on me. And, and when I'm able to deal with one sin, he reveals another. And it's kind of a gradual recognition of our own corruption. But God revealed all this man's wickedness at one time. If God did that to us, all of our sin at once, we would be destroyed. And Isaiah cried, I'm a man of a filthy mouth. I, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now that seems kind of strange that he would say that. You might expect him to say, I'm a man of unclean thoughts. I'm a man of unclean habits. I'm a man of unclean actions. Well, why did he say, I'm a man of unclean lips? Well, how do we reveal what's in our heart? I mean, how do we reveal what's inside of us? One time the Pharisees jumped all over Jesus because he didn't go through this 
process of, of, of washing, which was so vital, such a vital part of the Jewish pharisaical uh, form and ritual and worship. And Jesus looked at him and said, it's not what goes inside of a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. Now, what reveals what is in our heart? Our speech reveals what is in our heart. What we say reveals what we think. What we say reveals what we feel. Our speech betrays our attitude toward God, our deepest thoughts about Him. Our speech reveals what is on the inside of us. As a matter of fact, our speech may be a better example of our character than our actions. He saw Himself and he saw what others were like. He said, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And all of a sudden, not only was he aware of his personal sin, but he was aware, he had a new concept of that sin, that it pervaded all of life. And not only did he abhor his own personal sin, he abhorred sin in the lives of those around him. Isn't that amazing? that when we begin to abhor sin in our own life, we abhor it in the life of those around us. Not all, not, it, now, the good times didn't seem like good times anymore to him. And the fun that he had didn't seem like fun anymore. And the sin that was so attractive in the lives of those around him was no longer attractive to him. Why? Because he said, mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. That's what we need. He saw the holiness of God. Now, folks, listen. When you and I get a glimpse, get a get a taste, get a sight, get a vision of the holiness of God. No longer are we able to feel the same toward us or anybody else. Now watch this. What is the first priority of Jesus? Is it ridding dancing from the land? You know, first priority of Jesus is to rid dancing from the land. Uh, get everybody in Sunday school on high attendance day. Is that the first priority of Jesus? If you want to know what is the first priority of Jesus, you go to the prayer Jesus taught us to pray and you'll discover what is the first priority of Jesus. Now let's just look at that prayer for a second. Our Father which art in heaven, that's a, that's a means of introduction. That is an introduction. He's saying, Father, who art in heaven, here is the first priority of Jesus. Hallowed be thy name. You know what the word hallowed means? It means reverence. It means respect. Reverence be thy name. Thy name be respected. Thy name be hallowed. The first priority of Jesus is that his name be hallowed. That this God be recognized with deepest respect and reverence. This holy God be revered. That's his first priority. And, and, and you see there's a progression here. He says, thy will be done. Let me tell you something. 
the will of God will never be done until his name is hallowed. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven will never come to earth until the name of God, and by the way, the, the, the name of God means all that God is as he has chosen to reveal himself. The name of God, until the name of God is revered and respected, his kingdom will never come to earth. For what is it like in heaven? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What is it like in heaven? Well, in heaven, his name is revered. And all up and down the halls of heaven and all the activity of heaven is holy, holy, holy. These angelic beings give us a glimpse of what it's like in the court of the Lord. And the kingdom of heaven will never come on earth until his name is revered on earth and respected. That is the name that you and I take for granted. The name that we call, you know, this God we call the man upstairs. And I suppose that the greatest form of blasphemy and profanity in the taking of the name of God in vain is to take the name of God, is to take the name Christian and not be Christian. Ah, what a vision. And Isaiah is now groveling on the floor. Watch this. Look. Every fiber in his body is trembling and he's looking for a place to hide and he's praying somehow that the earth would cover him and that the walls and the roof of the temple would fall on him for anything is better than to stand in the gaze of a holy God but there's no place to hide he's naked and alone before God there's no Eve to comfort him. There are no fig leaves to hide him. And guilt, guilt, guilt screams out of every pore of his being. I want you to see him there. But this God who is on this throne, this sovereign God, this royal God, this holy God, transcendently separate, is not just a God of wrath. Indeed, he's a God of grace. And he sends the seraphim with a coal, live coal from the altar. There's a fire burning at the altar in the temple all day long, waiting for the burning, burnt offering to come to be brought. And so the coals are white hot. They're so hot that the angel couldn't even carry the coal in his hand. He had to take some tongs, the meat hook, flesh hooks that hang on the, by, the, by, the, by the pulpit, by the altar. And he, and he took those tongs and went to the lips of Isaiah the prophet and put that hot coal on his lips. Now it doesn't say this, but I imagine that at this point in time, Isaiah screamed. I remember this. As a kid, I really do. I must have been in middle school or high school. My preacher preached on this text. And when he got down to that point about that hot coal, that, that, that live coal touching the lips, and talked about the scream of this man, I thought, man, that must have hurt. 
That must have been painful. For the lips are, the most sen- are one of the most sensitive parts of the human anatomy. They're the intimate personal point of communication. It's the most, it's a tender spot. It's a sensitive spot. It's where the lovers embrace. And he brought this hot coal and put it on his mouth. He cauterized the wound. The the dirt of his mouth is burned away. He's refined by holy fire. It is a severe redemption. Now it tells us three things about repentance. I want you to get these. It tells us that repentance is, that forgiveness is conditioned upon repentance. Now I've heard that theology that says God loves us and he knows that we're you know, having troubles and he'll, he loves us like a father and he'll forgive us. Let me tell you, it's a bunch of, that, that, that's not the good theology. The only thing wrong with that, it's wrong. God doesn't just look and say, hey, I know he's gonna, he's a man, he's mortal, he's got problems, I'll forgive him. Forgiveness is conditioned upon repentance. In order for drastic sin to be dealt with if effectively, it must be dealt with drastically. It's, it's painful. Let me tell you something. There's no cheap grace here. For that cleansing to come before the holy God, that's real cleansing, that's real forgiveness. It's not just walk down an aisle and walk back. It's a painful thing. It, it, it's, it hurts. Now, I'd like to be able to, to say that, you know, you could go to the priest and walk in and sit down and tell him that you're sorry and have him say everything's all right. I wish it were that easy, but it's not. In order for there to be forgiveness of sin, there must be the pain of forgiveness, the the pain of cleansing. Third thing about forgiveness and repentance is that God must and does initiate it. This is an act of God here. The vision, now the voice. Have you noticed that we have not heard from God yet? I wonder what it's like when he finally speaks. I mean, all of the prelims are enough to make anybody quake. I mean, thrones and seraphim and, and smoke and sounds And then God speaks, and it's almost kind of like a soliloquy. He said, Hmm, I wonder who I'll send, and I wonder who will go for me, for us. Did you notice that plural? The Trinity. I wonder who I'll send, and I wonder who will go for us. As I got up this morning and got ready for this service, I heard him say, I wonder who I'll send. I wonder who will go for us. As I came into my study and got my Bible and went over my message, my notes a little bit this morning, I heard him say, I wonder who I'll send. I wonder who will go for us. 
as we came to the invitation tonight, this morning, I heard him say, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And there seems to be a pattern here. Did you notice it? God approaches, man trembles, God forgives and heals, man commits, God sins. Let me tell you, watch this. There is always brokenness before there is mission. Always mission occurs after brokenness. And if there are some of us tonight who have never been sent on a mission, it is because we have not yet been broken. For as soon as there is brokenness, as soon as one's personal integrity is shattered, as soon as he realizes that he has no standing in himself with any God, as soon as he realizes that his integrity is destroyed, that he is shattered and ruined, then God can use him. And only then. Then God sends him on mission. And Isaiah realized what is, being, what is happening here. He knew that to be sent was to be, to be made a mouthpiece for God, to function as an emissary, a spokesman for deity. In the New Testament, the word is apostolos, the apostle, one who has sent out from God. Now this is what he says. He cries, here am I. Now, he didn't say, here I am. He said, here am I. And there is a vast, vast difference in the statements. He's doing more than just identifying his location. He's not saying, if you're looking for me, here I am. He's not saying that. In the, in the, in the Hebrew, the idea is that in that moment, he makes a total commitment to God out of brokenness. He steps forward in commitment and says, me, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he steps out of the darkness of his brokenness, out of his shattered integrity and shouts, me. I never will forget, I can live, if I live be a hundred years old, I never forget that night when two years ago or three in the summertime, when revival was, was sweeping this church. Beautiful, wonderful experience. I was preaching through the book of Acts. Some of you remember it. I was preaching through the book of Acts and I was to that passage that talked about where Paul was saying, I want to go somewhere where nobody has ever been before. I don't want to, I don't want to cut down through old trails. I want to blaze new trails. And I said, is there anybody here who would say that? Send me to those un, un broken places to those unchartered, uh, uh, unmapped trails. And an old boy sitting up in the balcony said, I will. Just kind of wandered in off the street, got up in the balcony. When I said that, he said, I will. I like swallowed my, wasn't in my notes, you know. I, not a, some, will you remember that? Were you all here when that happened? Yes, sir, wasn't that great? Oh. And that boy 
went on back to California. I have a friend who is BSU director out in Eugene, Oregon, and he was headed to Eugene. I said, I want you to look my friend up. My friend called me. He's about two or three weeks after that. He said, the weirdest guy just showed up at my place. What, what is this guy? He, well, who is this guy? Who is this character? I said, well, it's this boy. I guess he, he said, here's some guy showed up at my front door and said that preacher down in Oklahoma tell me how to go to the ends of the earth where nobody's ever been before. I mean, he took it seriously. Who will I send? Young people, who's he going to send? College students, who's he going to send? And he's up there somewhere in the, in the councils, the triune council of God. And the God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that marvelous trinity of unity must be saying, who's going to go for us? For the fact is, put those pencils up and listen to me. For the fact is that even though this transcendently separate holy God is sovereign and regal and royal, and even though this holy God is so different and separate and, 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 and unique from all of us. He must have you. And he must have me if he's going to do anything to this world. Now there are two things I want you to notice in Isaiah's reply that I'm through. One, there's no Humpty Dumpty here. Humpty Dumpty had a great, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Shattered that egg into a million pieces. It's not true in Isaiah's case. Shattered him into a thousand pieces. But God took those pieces of that broken man and made him into the prophet of prophets. He took a man, are you listening? He took a man with a filthy mouth which was indicative of a filthy heart and he made him a mouthpiece. That's what God does. Second thing I want you to notice about the reply is that God's work of grace does not annihilate personal identity. He's still able to say, he's still able to speak in terms of I. Here am I. You see, God's grace, work of grace, and God's call to mission does not destroy one's personality, does not annihilate one's identity. I think sometimes we think that. If I give my heart to God, I'll lose my personality. I'll lose my identity. I won't be what I would really want to be. Listen, God doesn't destroy the self. He redeems the self and he heals the self so that it can be useful and fulfilled in mission. Now no minister is worthy to preach a sermon on the holiness of God. And I feel so ashamed because I fear that somehow you might think, well, he must know something about holiness when I don't. 
about the only thing I know about holiness is that I am not. And what has drawn me to this text is that I want the experience of Isaiah ben Amos. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to see and to hear. To see a vision, to hear a voice, and give us courage to say, Here am I. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Now, I want us to come this tonight to a place of decision if God leads you. The decisions that we must make concern personal salvation. You know whether you have His righteousness or not. That righteousness is imputed, is granted, is given on the basis of our faith and trust in His Son, Jesus? Have you ever faithed Him, believed on Him, trusted in Him for salvation? I want you to. I want you to follow Him in baptism. I want you to say, here am I. I'm willing to step into the baptistry. I'm willing to step out before friends, peers, colleagues. Here am I. I want you to join our church if God leads you. The mission for your life involves the local church. You'd say, here am I. Maybe some have been struggling with a call to personal vocational, Christian vocational life. You've just never come to the place to say, here am I, send me. I thought as I got ready to come in here, it's got to be the greatest thrill in all the world to be one sent from God with an oracle from God. It's got to be the greatest thing that could ever happen to be chosen directly and immediately and sent from God. Do you feel He's doing that in your life? You've struggled against it because you think it's a curse. It's a blessing. Maybe you need to come tonight to rededicate yourself to God. Come to the altar for the, for the coal, for the, for, the, for the cleansing. Forgiveness is conditioned upon repentance. Repentance is turning from sin. Would you do it while we stand to sing you come?